I would say it's a sign of a healthy church that people keep talking and the preacher can't start, right? That's a good thing. So y'all don't stop now just because I said something. <laughs> it's so good to be with you today at Lifehouse. Yeah, glad you're here too, Shia. Glad you're here. Um, go ahead and get your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5. And um, that's where we'll spend the beginning of our time today. If this is your first time, again, thank you so much for being here. Can we give it up for our guest today? Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for choosing to be at Lifehouse. My name is Drew, and for whatever reason, uh, I get to be the pastor of this church. And, uh, I mean, one day they'll figure it out, and they'll <laughs> be like, no, we can do better. Anyway, I'm having fun. I'm having fun. Even if you're not, I'm having fun. I want to ask you a question before I read this. And um, like I said earlier, I feel like there's something special about today. Um, I believe today is going to function as a seed or maybe, you know, if you're not into agriculture, maybe it would be better to say a launching off point. Uh, for where God is taking us as a church, but also I hope more than that even, I hope it's for you and your family. But I want to start with one question, then I'll ask another in a minute. When were you most passionate for Jesus? And if that, if, if there was a time that you were more passionate for Jesus than you are now, why? I was thinking about this. Uh, if you follow me on Facebook, I posted a YouTube video, and, and, and I encourage you to go listen to it. And it's a video that was, uh, or it really isn't a video, it's more of an audio track, and it was, it was made sometime in the mid to early 90s. And the guy who made it made it for his youth ministry in the early or in the mid 90s and it spread like wildfire throughout the US it takes uh, video clips or audio clips rather from different preachers like Duncan Campbell and Leonard Ravenhill preachers from the 50s the 1950s right yeah and 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 it talks and, and Duncan Campbell who you need to look him up was a uh, the preacher who who preached during a time what was called the Hebrides revival it's an island off of Scotland it took place in the late 40s to early 50s. And then there's, there's clips that, uh, of the Brownsville revival that took place from 95 through 2000 in Pensacola, Florida. And in the early 2000s, after I became a Christian, I was given a cassette tape. And, and for those of you, anybody, can I get a witness? You know what I'm talking about? I was given a cassette tape of, of this recording. It's about an hour long, and it was just called, with, you know, uh, a marker written on it, it was called Revival Fire. That was the name of it. And I listened to that cassette uh, in my vehicle, because, you know, back then we had cassette players in our vehicles, right? I don't even have a CD player in mine anymore. Um, but, you know, we had cassette players, and I would listen to it. And I listened to it for, for so long, so often, that even a pencil couldn't fix it. You know what I'm saying? And as I was listening to that recording uh, this week on YouTube, um, I just felt, can I, be real, can I be honest with you today? Yeah. I just felt like, you know, the 17-year-old the version of myself 20 years ago um, was nowhere near as sanctified as the 37-year-old version is. Um, he had a lot of struggles. He said things, even more than the 37-year-old version does, he said things that got him in trouble that he looked back on and regretted. He did things. Uh, he went places. He thought things that, um, that were very different for me as a 37-year-old. But that 17-year-old version of myself had a passion for Jesus and to such a degree, to such a level, that I look back on that version of myself and think, I, I, I wish I could recapture some of that rawness, some of that realness, some of that just untamed spirituality. And that's the thing. The older we get, the more domesticated we get. 
right? The more we start worrying about what people think and how we appear, and the more we begin to try to reel in some of the, uh, some of the, the let's just say, weirdness of our spirituality. And 17-year-old Drew didn't care if he looked weird. He didn't care if he, if he made sense. Uh, I preached my first sermon when I was 15 years old. And I remember walking up on the platform, and I preached all of 11 minutes. Some of you would be like, man, that'd be great today. You know, <laughs> I'm already five minutes in, so I'd only have six to go. But I preached 11 minutes, and, I, and I, I walked up with no notes. I walked up with my Bible. I had fasted all day. It was a Wednesday night, and I was hungry, and I was tired, and I was scared, and my hand shook like this as I held the microphone because I was so nervous, and I was chasing it with my head trying to talk in it, you know? And I, and I walked like this the whole time I preached, like this right here. But, man, there was passion there. There was zeal. There was fire. Now, nothing I said made sense. But you knew, man, I love Jesus. And I was passionate for Jesus. And as I listened to that recording, go, go find me on Facebook and, and, and listen to it. Carve out an hour. You'll either love it or you'll think it's ridiculous. But I hope you'll love it. You might think it's both, and that's okay too. But I remember thinking... Or this week I thought, as I listened to that, man, where'd that guy go? Yeah, I got an education, right? I, had, I, I, I became an adult. I had responsibilities. You know, I had to start thinking and caring about the opinions of people. So again, let me ask you this question. When were you most passionate for Jesus? And if that time is not now, what happened? Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 1, he says, One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And then our beatitude for today, Matthew 5, 8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure. For they will see God. Man, 17-year-old version of me. Listen, I, I, I was rough around the edges. But my heart was pure. I, I would read the Bible. And I believed what it said. I mean, I want you to, I want you to understand. I would read where Jesus says, anything you ask in my name. I will do. And I believed it. And I would be working it as a bag boy and a stalker at Piggly Wiggly. And I would see somebody walking with a limp. And I would be like, hey, can I pray for you? Like today, can I just be on, can I just be a real human with you today? Man, I got places to go and things to do. I got too much stuff going on in my life to take that kind of time right now to stop a stranger in the middle of a store and say, hey, can I pray for you? You know, because if I do that, they, might, they may go into a long story that really I don't have time to hear, you know, because my kids get out of school at three and we've got to be there for this. And then I've, I've got, you know, we've got a life group tonight. And, and you know, we, we start looking like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're so busy doing ministry that we forget about the passion and the heart behind it, what it is that we do. You know, why was the Levite, why was the priest, why did they leave the man on the side of the road? Because they had to get to synagogue to worship. You know, but 17-year-old me was bold. 17-year-old me was too dumb to be scared. Let's just be honest about it. 17-year-old me, while I didn't know the word, nowhere as well as I do today. Literally, my first message, I mean like, it was a textbook heresy, right? <laughs> Legitimately. 
I took everything out of context. I made it say what I wanted it to say. And I know the word so much better than I do today. I, I may have had three scriptures memorized as a 17-year-old, and today I could probably quote 100 scriptures. But when I read it, I believed it, and I believed it in such a way that I wanted to see it become reality in my life, in my church, and in my community. But something happened. Life happened, right? And there's nothing wrong with growing up. There's nothing wrong with maturing in your faith. In fact, we are called to do that, right? But isn't it Jesus who said, only those with faith like a child will see the kingdom. You know, God doesn't call us to immaturity, but he does call us to childlikeness. I was listening to the, um, this isn't my sermon, guys. You okay? I mean, like, I read the scripture. We'll get there. And, you know, you'll get maybe dinner. You'll be in, out in time for dinner. We ain't at two services yet. I can go long today. I was listening to John Kilpatrick. He was the pastor of Brownsville Assembly during the 90s when revival broke out in Pensacola, Florida. And he said they had prayed for it for over five years that God would move. And he said on the day that, that, that it shifted, it was Father's Day of 1995. And they had a guest speaker, Steve Hill. Anybody, if you're familiar with Brownsville, you know these names. Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say Brownsville? Some of you do. That's cool. Steve Hill was preaching. And they had 1,700 people or so in service that day. And it, he preached for about 20 minutes, and then he gave an altar call. And John Kilpatrick, you know, this is back in the day when the pastor sat on the stage. And, you know, some churches still do that, and that's cool, but we ain't going to do that here because I think it's weird and I'm not going to do it. Um, I don't want you looking at me, like, while I'm over there blowing my nose while Don's singing. But anyway, um, he was sitting on stage, and Steve Hill gave the altar call, and he said a 1,000 people came to the altar as the Holy Spirit began moving on them. And John Kilpatrick's first thoughts were, ah, it's Father's Day. We have things to do. And he said he sat on that stage for about 10 minutes, mad at what God was doing in the service because he had already scheduled lunch with his family at a certain restaurant. And he said, I almost missed it because I was so busy living life that I did not stop long enough to see what God was doing right in front of my eyes and said thankfully he's a gracious father and 10 minutes later as the Holy Spirit began to convict his heart he began to move among those in the altar and to pray for people and for four hours the Holy Spirit and some of you you're, you're unfamiliar with this and that's okay that's all right remember we believe a man died and then he rose from the dead, and then he literally physically ascended into heaven. So let's just not get caught up on what we don't understand, right? He said that nobody touched him, nobody prayed for him, nobody pushed him. But as he was standing there, he felt the immense weight of the glory of God come over him, and he fell on the floor, and he laid there completely motionless for four hours as the Holy Spirit began to just minister to his heart. And somebody said, what, what did God do in those four hours? And he said, you know, growing up, I didn't have a dad. And my mom would always tell me, I'm so sorry you don't have a dad. I'm so sorry you don't have a father. And he would say, oh, it's okay, mom. You're, you're enough for me. You're enough for me. And in those four hours' time, the father said, you do have a dad. You do have a father. This is a 40, 50-year-old man at the time. But he's still being ministered to in that way. And that launched a five-plus-year time where over a million and a half people would flock to Pensacola, Florida to experience what God was doing there. And there have been a lot of critics of the Brownsville Revival, but, you know, critics never change anything for the good. I, don't, I mean, honestly, I would rather go in a little overboard than stay out and watch from a distance and point my finger like I have arrived at something. How much do we miss out on because we, 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 we refuse to participate and instead we just point and criticize? So, 
Let me ask you again. When were you most passionate for the Lord? And if that is not today, what happened? And the second question I want to ask you is if today, starting right now, you said yes to everything the Lord asked of you, how much better would your life be? You know, I, I've got three children, and, and the, the oldest two were just now getting old enough to where they know more than me. I mean, they're, they're not there yet. You know, they're not teenagers yet, but I can see it on the horizon. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I, have, I have gone on record telling them, I would say to, to them, I would say, if you would just do what I tell you to do, I promise you everything would be so much easier for you. Can I get a witness from any moms and dads in the house? If you would just do what I said, when I said, how I said it, I feel, I feel the Holy Ghost in this place, right? Things would be so much better for you. Can I tell you, though, can I, can I, can I tell you that if you would turn your ear towards heaven and if you would listen patiently for your father's voice and you would respond yes to whatever it is he says, whether it's to quit something or to start something or to go somewhere or to not go somewhere, whatever it is, if you would listen for his voice and give him a yes at whatever he says, your life, you can think back on it, right? You, you're probably already doing that where you know you have stepped out in sin. You know, the Bible says if a man or if a woman knows to do good but does it not to him, it is sin. So there are things in your life. There's purchases you've made. There are places you've been, right? There's things you have done. There's things you haven't done that when you look back on it, you know, you know you disobeyed the heart of God for your life. And so, so you might would say, you know, I wish I would have listened to God then. Well, the hard truth is it doesn't matter because you can't change it. But the beautiful thing is you can start now. You know, the old saying is when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago, right? Well, when's the second best time? Today. So how much better would your life be if starting today you said, Father, I want to hear your voice and whatever you tell me, Whatever you say. I mean, listen, I'm talking about in the big things and the small things. I'm talking about in the little things, the, the seemingly insignificant things, as well as the, the huge decisions. Father, I want to hear your voice. I want to be led by you. I want to speak what you would have me speak. I want to go where you would have me go. I want to give what you would have me give. I want to buy what you would have me buy. I want to befriend who you would have me befriend. How much better would your life be? You guys okay? Yeah. Let me get a drink of water. Matthew 5, 8. I promise that I'm at least going to try to make this tie in to this scripture, okay? <laughs> God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. The NIV says it, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The Good News Bible is a very... Um, easy to read translation. It says, happy are the pure in heart. They will see God. The opposite, if I were to put together an opposite here uh, of Matthew 5, 8, it would say, cursed are those who live for the approval of others for they will miss out on God's greatest gift, which is himself. I mean, if God is the greatest good that there is, and he is, the greatest thing he can give you is himself. We used to say it like this in youth group. We would say, we would say, we don't seek his hand, his hand of blessing, rather. We seek his face. Because his face, or rather, him, he is. He is the greatest gift. He he is not a means to an end. He is the end. But what happens through the course of our life is that we begin to treat our Father as a means to an end rather than the end. 
We begin to domesticate and to tame our faith. And we begin to seek him when it benefits us. We begin to pray. We begin to fast even when we need something from God. If the only time you're going to pray or going to fast, and fast is, you know, I like to joke, like I don't like to fast, but I'm pretty good at being slow. So, but anyway, is when you need something from the Lord. Can I just tell you, don't even bother with it. Because who wants a child to only pay their parent attention when they need something from you? That's what infants do. And I love babies, but I don't want my kids to be babies forever. Some of y'all disagree, but that's okay. (laughs) In Matthew 23, Jesus gives this story about the Pharisees. He says, "You're you're like dirty cups. On the outside, you look clean, you look put together, you look pure, you look great, but on the inside, you're filthy. Can I just tell you truly from the bottom of my heart that that is the condition of a lot of us today? That we have an an appearance of righteousness. You know, we like to give the Pharisees a hard time, but um, I think a lot of times we are more guilty of living like them than we would care to admit. We appear righteous. We, we know the right words to say. We know the right phrases. We, we know the right Bible verses. And we may even know the Bible, but do we know the one behind the scriptures? The Pharisees worked very hard to appear right in front of people. And... We live in a world today where, and this isn't the commentary on social media, but, but it has the, the, the mindset of social media has invaded the way we do everything where we want to put forth this persona. We want to put forth this appearance. That's why when we go on vacation, you know, we, we, our kids are screaming and yelling and fighting, but, you know, if we can get them to just smile for five seconds to take that perfect picture that we can put up on Instagram, you know, it's going to look great. It's going to look wonderful. But what they don't know is that behind the scenes, we, were, we almost killed each other. You know, we almost came home with one less child. Don't judge me. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And those of you who don't have kids yet, and you're like, oh, I would never, shut up. You don't know. You don't know. You just wait. That's like when people who don't have kids talk about how tired they are. I'm like, you, what? You ain't tired? Anyway, I digress. So he, he tells the Pharisees, he tells us today, he, the message of the gospel is this, let me transform your heart which is the root of all of your problems. Let me give you a pure heart. Ezekiel says that we would exchange this heart of stone for a heart of flesh, a heart that is malleable, that is easily transformed, that is easily touched by the things of God. Let me give you a new heart. And then as I give you a new heart, the things that you try to change, that you are unable to do so successfully, I will change them. So let me me just break it down to you. I'm just gonna talk to you real simplistic here. So, like, you've been trying to stop drinking, right? And, and you try, and, you, and then you fail, and then you try, and then you fail, and then you allow guilt and condemnation to invade your spirit, and then, and then you just feel like you'll never succeed. And what Jesus would say to you is, stop trying so hard to keep it all together and allow yourself to just fall apart in my hands. You've been, you've been, Yeah. You've been trying to stop losing your temper and you try to control it, but it seems like the more you try to control it, the more you realize it's out of control. Been trying to to watch your mouth only to realize, man, this thing inside my mouth, this tongue, the Bible says it's like a fire that sets a whole forest ablaze. It's the most destructive element, the most destructive weapon in our arsenal. And God says... You can't control it, so stop trying. And instead of working so hard to do, how about you just surrender and let me? You've been trying so hard to keep it together. You've been trying so hard to 
to do whatever, to stop and then you fill in the blank. Or maybe to start and then you fill in the blank. And even if you think you're doing okay, and I think when we're very honest, I don't believe many people would say that. At the end of the day, the truth is, if you're still breathing, he's still working on you, right? David said it like this. He said, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me, he says, from these hidden faults. And the thing is, there are things that you do that on the outside, when people see them, they think, wow, such a good person, such a good man, such a good woman. But there is motivation of pride in your heart that causes you to do it. And even though you don't say it out loud, you enjoy and you seek after those accolades from people to see you, to applaud you, to pat you on the back. And that's, that's how sin works, right? You know, if the devil showed up at your doorstep wearing his red suit and his pitchfork, right? You know, because that's what he looks like. We all know, right? And, and, and he stood in front of your door and, he, and he, he started telling you the things that he wants you to do. And, you know, he said, he said, AJ, I want you to murder people. And, and, and you know, like, yeah, let's just say, I mean, I could see that. And, uh, <laughs> he says, AJ, I want you to murder people. And, 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 and Holly, I want you to, um, what's something bad, Holly? No, I'm just kidding. Don't tell me. <laughs> hate people. Yeah, hate people. Obviously, Holly struggles with hating people. You know, we'd be like, nah, I'm good. I'm okay. But that's not how he shows up, right? No, no, no. He starts with a whisper in your mind that says, he doesn't go up and say, I want you to murder people. But he says, you know, that Chad, he, he acts like he's got it all together. He, I'm, you know, he's got those big biceps and those. Oh, yeah, we'll go over here. Yeah. <laughs> We got one over here too. Pick your pick your pick with the Chads in the room. You know, he's got those big biceps. He's got that beautiful head of hair. You know this one. <laughs> Which starts this thing where surely and 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 so inconspicuously envy sets in. And then, and then criticism steps, sets in. And then cynicism, where, you know, no matter what he does, you got something to say about it. you got something to think about it. And while he's not murdering him physically, he's killing him with his thoughts and his words. And I'll, I'll leave you out, because I don't want I don't, I don't to go someplace I shouldn't go. That's what sin looks like, right? And it gets in our heart. And David says, cleanse me from these hidden faults, these things that I don't realize that I'm even doing. Because you don't know what you don't know until you know what you didn't know. And the Holy Spirit is working in you through the course of your life to make you conform more and more to the image of Christ. So the longer you follow Jesus, the more, the more sensitive you become to sin. At least you should. You know, there were things that I did as a 17-year-old that I would not even consider doing today because I have become sense, my heart has become more sensitive to sin. And the, the longer I follow Jesus, the more sinful I realize I am because the more sensitive I become to the things in me and about me that are, that are in opposition to God's will for me. And, and when I'm 57 one day, God willing, I will look back at my 37-year-old self and I will say, I would never do that again. How can I know the secret sins in my heart? And so we look at, we look at David, we look at Saul. And, you know, Saul in your Old Testament, you know, it, every, I would say almost every sermon I have ever heard about Saul paints him in a bad light. But I just want to stand up for Saul today and say, I think we have judged him a little too harshly. 
Because we, we look at David and we look at Saul and we see Saul is the bad guy and David is the good guy, right? But, and, and, and that's true in the grand scheme of their life. But, but I think that, that we would do us well to take a deeper dive into both of their lives to understand that we probably got a lot more Saul in us than we realize. And we probably got a lot more David in us that we realize that needs to get wake, wakened up. They were both great men. They were both kings of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel. David was the second king of Israel. They both did amazing things. And can I tell you, they both did really bad stuff too. Like, like really bad stuff. But David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. And Saul is referred to as a man that God rejected. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul was preparing to fight the Philistines. And something that you'll see throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is that worship always precedes warfare. And it does today as well. Because we don't fight our battles like this, right? We fight our battles like this. That's a good preaching. That's another sermon for another day. Saul was preparing to fight the Philistines and he was waiting on Samuel to show up to offer the sacrifice because here's the deal. You can't worship unless you sacrifice. You say, oh, Pastor Drew, Jesus is the one and only sacrifice. Yeah, but what does Romans 12, 1 say? That we are to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. So, so if worship does not lead to greater obedience, then all I did was sing some songs. Y'all, I didn't come to play games today, right? I, I quit school because of recess. I, I'm kidding, I have a bachelor's degree. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, anyway. Saul was preparing to fight the Philistines. He got tired of waiting on Samuel. About a week goes by and Saul, the king, not Samuel, the priest and the prophet, Saul, the king says, you know what? I'm just going to offer the sacrifice myself. And so he offers the sacrifice. And, you know, wouldn't you know that just moments after Saul offers the sacrifice, here Samuel comes, you know, walking up and, and, and says, Saul, what have you done? And, 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 and this, is, this is what happens. Uh, he says um, in verse 14 of chapter 13, he says, um, you have, since you've done this, your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And here's the thing. It wasn't that Saul had offered the sacrifice. That, that, that was sinful. That was wrong. That was bad. But it was the motivation of his heart as to why he offered the sacrifice. It was that, that Saul used God as a means to his own end. And see, the reason why they worshiped before warfare wasn't so that they would have victory. It was because that's what God told them to do, that you will worship, that worship will precede battle, that worship will precede warfare. But in this instance, Saul is saying, you know, my men, they're looking for Samuel and we've got to fight. We've got things to do. So in order to build up their courage and in order for us to get victory, because Saul had convinced himself that the only way they could be victorious is if they offered a sacrifice, which is true in the sense that that's what God told them to do, but it's false in the sense that Saul wanted victory. Well, if I want victory, I guess we got to worship first. And how many of you know God doesn't honor worship like that? Because that's not worship. All he did was kill an animal. And for many of us today, all you did was sing a song. You didn't worship. You sang, you went to a concert, but you didn't worship. Saul said, you know, if I want to win, we've got to worship. It's like when we pray because we have a need. But we don't pray when we don't have a need. You see, God, God wants you to come to him when you have a need. But that's not the only time he wants you to come to him. 
You can sing the songs. You can pray the prayers. Man, you can even preach the sermons. You can know the Bible. You can be able to quote it. You can be able to, to defend it. But if, if at the end of the day, God is a means to your end and not the end himself, not only is it not worship, it's a disgrace. Jesus, this, and this is why Jesus was able to say, he says at Matthew 7, he says, many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment. He says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not even cast out demons in your name? And he's going to look at them and he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, you sinful person. I never knew you. I never knew you. We skip on over to 1 Samuel 15, right? And Saul is preparing yet again for another battle. He's going to battle the Amalekites, right? There's a lot of ites, right? You know, you got the Amorites, Amalekites, Midianites. Some old preacher used to say the termites. And he says to Samuel, or says to Saul, rather, destroy everything. Destroy the gold, silver, destroy all of it, destroy all the people, destroy all the houses, leave nothing behind. Completely leave the place in ruins. Because God knows that if you, if you leave some of that, that the remnant of what you left behind will infect what I'm trying to do in you, and it will keep you from being able to go where I'm taking you. And so this is what the word says in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 15. Saul and his men, they spared Agag's life, which Agag was the king of the Amalekites. I've never met any, I'm, I hear a lot of Bible names, but Agag thankfully has missed the list of recent names. Um, somebody pregnant, she, think about it, you know, pray about it. <laughs> Let me know, I'd like to know that. So I can laugh at you behind your back. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and they kept the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They only destroyed what was worthless or of poor quality. I've heard a lot of sermons preached on that. And what are you keeping in your life that God's told you to get rid of? What we do is, you know, we rationalize sin. We say, you know, well, for so-and-so, this is a sin, but for me, it's not a big deal. And I'm not going to list, I'm not going to name anything because that goes down a road that I'm, I don't care to go down. I, I think that if there is something in your life that you have felt an, even a tinge of conviction over, I would encourage you, just like we opened this service or sermon with saying, you know, yes, you want me to lay that down? Okay, I'll lay that down. Can I tell you, like, there have been TV shows that I was, man, I wish I could watch that, but I can't watch it anymore, and you might can watch it, and that's fine. That's not a big deal. I don't, I don't judge you for that. I just know I can't do it because the Holy Spirit convicted my heart, and I was like, I don't need that in my life. I can't watch that, and I want to watch it, but I would rather say yes to him. And then, I mean, obviously, then you can fill in the blank with so many other things, right? But I guarantee you, I promise you, every single person in this room, myself included, that if you would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and you would say, God, what is in my life that you are telling me to lay down? I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, there's at least one thing he would say. You know, I've been meaning to bring this up. I was going to let it rest a while, but since you asked, here it is. Or maybe it's not something you need to lay down. Maybe it's something you need to pick up. You know, AJ's talking earlier about giving and being involved, and maybe, maybe it's time to join a serve team, right? Yeah. Maybe it's time to join a life group. Maybe it's time to stop thinking you can do more with 100% of your income than God can do with 90% of your income. 
I digress again. <laughs> you see, essentially what was happening was that the Amalekites were to be a sacrifice to God. And Saul and his men, when they fought the Amalekites, they saw the good things. They saw the stuff that they thought, man, it sure would be a shame to get rid of this. I mean, this right here sounds a lot like a man named Judas when a lady in John comes to Jesus and busts open an alabaster box of perfume that was worth, the gospels say, a year's salary. And Judas says, man, it's a shame that this was wasted in this fashion. This could have been sold and used to feed the poor. And that's what we do with things in our life, right? We rationalize. You know, we would be ashamed to give that up. It would be a shame to pick that up because, you know, I could do so much with it. When in reality, God is saying, if you would stop trying to have so much control, you would be amazed at how much I could do with your surrender. And so they saw the good stuff and they said, you know what, we're just going to keep this for ourselves. And then... They killed or they sacrificed or they destroyed only the things that were worthless and of poor quality. In other words, they gave God what was left over when they took what they wanted. Man, that sounds a lot like a lot of our calendars. That sounds a lot like our checkbook registries. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I, am I being too honest with you right now? Is that why I'm not getting any amens from the, from the congregation? That sounds like a lot of our text message conversations and the way we talk to people, talk about people, and treat people. All right, I'll just keep going then. Are you okay, for real? Like, I'm a little worried about you at this point. So Samuel shows up and he says, I like how the King James says it. it says, Samuel goes, is that the bleeding of sheep I hear? You know, Saul sinned, but what was really sad was not that he sinned. It was his response to his sin. Because this is what it says in 1 Samuel 15, starting with verse 24. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. Can I just tell you right there? That's a lie. That's not true. Because he took the good stuff. Saul, Saul thought, man, this is, this is a good thing. These, that's some good sheep. That's some good calves. That'll make a good ribeye. You know, I'll, I'll take that. I don't want to give that to God. I want to give that to me. He wasn't afraid of people. He was selfish. He says, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded, but now please forgive my sin, which sounds good, but you gotta, you're going to see his heart in a minute. Forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Samuel replied, I will not go back with you since you have rejected the Lord's command. He has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he, is the, and, and he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. Now here is where we see Saul's heart. Saul said again, I know I've sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Please. I know I messed up, sir. Samuel, I know I was wrong. I get it. Fine. Whatever. It is what it is. But hey, there's a whole bunch of people over there. And if you don't come back with me, they're going to start talking. They're going to start thinking. And they, they, may, they may, if they, if they think that you're not with me, they may even rebel against me as their leader. Yeah, I sinned. Okay, so What? I messed up. Yeah, I get it. I know. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done what I did. 
But, but, but Samuel, will you please at least help me save face in front of my people? Not, will you help me save face in front of my God? In fact, he says, let's go ahead. Go back with me so we can worship the Lord, not my God, not our God, but the Lord, your God. And then in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse, right? God has told Samuel, hey, I'm going to anoint another king of Israel. And so he's sent to the house of Jesse, and, and Samuel gets there, and this is what happens. The word says in uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height. I want to read that last part again. <laughs> I've been waiting on that one all week. Don't judge by his appearance or his height. Come on. In other words, he may, he may be tall, dark, and handsome, but I have rejected him, thus says the Lord. God goes on and he says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So he looks at Eliab, Abinadab, Shemiah, and then four other brothers. And then, and then Samuel says to, to Jesse, do you have any more kids? Because I am pretty positive God told me to come to your house, that one of your sons was going to be the next king, and I was supposed to anoint him. But I, I'm, th these guys aren't cutting it. And, and, and Jesse says, well, I do have one more son. He's out tending the sheep. He's out with, he's, he's our shepherd. I didn't even bother to go get him because I figured there's no way you would want him. He's the youngest. And a lot of people actually believe that, that David was an illegitimate son of Jesse. That's why David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. And so, so Jesse is actually trying to hide David. But man, aren't you so thankful? God doesn't see the way we see. He doesn't think the way we think. He doesn't judge the way we judge. God sees the heart. Many years later, David would write this psalm, Psalm 24, one of my favorite passages. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Blessed the pure in heart for they will see God here's the thing I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping this up so hang with me okay David David was not perfect like in fact if we're just going to make a pros and cons list between David and Saul I would probably pick Saul. David did some pretty rough stuff in his lifetime. David, uh, the Bible says, uh, committed adultery, but you know what really happened with Bathsheba is, is he raped her. He saw her, he liked what he saw, and because he was the king, he abused his power to take what he wanted. And not only did he take what he wanted from her, he had her husband murdered. Like, you know, we tell that story sometimes, like, in, in you know, a VeggieTales version of it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I've about preached that in my voice this morning, so hang, hang with me. i got to get done soon. We preach that VeggieTales version of David and Bathsheba. But, but guys, listen, that's a rough story. I mean, think about it for a moment. He made some... Really bad choices as a dad. I mean, I, I don't care how bad of a father you think you have, are or had. Uh, David beat you. He was not a good dad. He, one time he blatantly disobeyed God. This is a story that kind of doesn't get talked about a lot. He allowed his pride to make him disobey God. He wanted to take a census of Israel and see how many people he had in the, in the military that could fight. 
And Joab, his commander, says, listen, don't do this, David. This is a move of pride. God is going to judge you for this. And David said, essentially, hey, you be quiet. I know I'm the king. I'll do what I want to do. And so David takes that census. It may not seem like it was a big deal, but because it was motivated by pride, it was a big deal. And literally, because of what he did, because of his sin, he was responsible for the death of over 70,000 people in Israel. I mean... I just, just let that soak in for a moment. And you, you might be tempted to say, man, how could God say this is a man after my own heart when he was so wretched and so messed up and did so many wrong things? And I would offer to you the rebuttal, how could God say that you are a man or a woman after his own heart when you have allowed sin to creep into your life and to separate you from the goodness and glory of God and everything he has for you? You see, we want, to, we want to pick up the rocks and we want to throw the first stone. Jesus would say to you, let him or her without sin cast the first stone. And you say, well, what's the difference between David and Saul? Saul didn't kill that many people. Saul never did that to some lady. Saul was a, sort of a better dad than David. Not really, though, but kind of. How can, how can David be a man after God's own heart and Saul be rejected by God? How can David be pure in heart and see God, but Saul be so corrupt and miss out on what God had for him? And here it is. When Saul sinned, all he cared about was what do people think? When David sinned, all he cared about was what does God think? You see, being a person who is pure in heart doesn't mean that you don't mess up. It just means that when you do mess up, you go straight to your Father. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul said it like this in Galatians 2.21. He said, if righteousness or right standing with God could be attained through the law, or rather could be achieved through doing good stuff, then Jesus died for nothing. In other words, we have been given such a gift of grace. It would be a shame for each of us to allow our mistakes to create a separation between us and Jesus when even in our failure, even in our mistakes, and even in our sin, he still extends his hand to me and says, listen, I paid the penalty so you don't have to. Come back to me. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed is the person who when they fail, when they fall, when they mess up, when they sin, who throws their hands up to God and says, God, I am so sorry. I have sinned. And this is what David does. He writes it. He writes the entire psalm to it. Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. This is after Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says, David, you have done something terrible with Bathsheba. And this is a terrible situation that you've done. You deserve to die, but God's going to spare your life. And David doesn't walk around to Nathan and say, Nathan, will you please protect my reputation in front of the people? He doesn't make an announcement to try to cover up his sin. Instead, he goes straight to his father and he says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. 
and restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. The only way you can have a pure heart is if you take a broken heart to your Father. And you say, God, I don't, I don't have much. I have sin. I have fear. I have doubts. I have worries. I have pain. I've been broken. But what I do have, I give it to you. That's what he wants. That's what 17-year-old Drew gave to God. I didn't have a church. I didn't have a family. I didn't have an education. I didn't have any Bible knowledge or understanding. I didn't have anything. But God, what I do have, I give to you. The danger is that as we get older or as we mature, we act like Saul and we start seeing these seemingly good things. And we say, you know, I'm gonna keep that for myself. And instead of offering everything I have and everything I am, I keep some back. I say, oh, you know, that's, God's okay with it. He understands. Me and God, we made a deal. When God says, I either want it all or nothing at all. It's true though. My pastor used to say, until you've given God everything, you haven't given him anything that's worth anything. To go to God with a pure heart, to be able to see him, to know him, to have intimacy with him, you have to give him everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Will you stand with me this morning? What if you said yes? everything and you made up your mind I am not going to hold anything back I think the reason why we struggle to say yes to everything is because we don't trust that he's really that good and we get worried that maybe God doesn't know what's best for me as well as I do My friend, I gotta tell you, that's the farthest thing from the truth though. He knows you. He, he knows you better than you know you. He designed you, he made you, he formed you, he crafted you. His word tells us that before we were born, he planned out good works for us. And only when we give him everything only when we give him a yes at every turn will we truly see God and see God move in our lives, move in our church, move in our community, move in our homes, move in our country.
You know, I'm not praying for another Brownsville revival because it lasted for five years and then it disappeared. I'm praying for a fresh move of God. One that my kids will enjoy just as much, if not more, than I enjoy. One that my grandkids will be able to be a part of. One that doesn't show up like a flash in the pan and then disappear. Now, I'm not speaking negatively. That was a great thing that happened in the 90s and early 2000s. It was fantastic. It was wonderful. But I don't want that. I want what he has today. I got three sermon points for you. I'll give them to you right now. Three keys to a pure heart. Number one, be quick to forgive. Be quick to forgive. Also be quick to ask for forgiveness when you need to. Bitterness, offense, resentment, those are the devil's love language. When you hold on to those, you're making his day. And he will use that to keep you from having a pure heart. So number one, be quick to forgive because you can't be right with God if you were wrong with people. You can't. Number two, be quick to repent. Ask the Holy Spirit, even right now, even as I'm talking, is there any wicked way in me? Is there anything hidden in my heart that I'm not aware of? And God, if it is, help me to become aware of it, to repent from it. That means to turn away from it, to give it to you, God, and to walk in the way that you would have me walk, to live in the way that you would have me live. So be quick to forgive, be quick to repent, and then lastly, be quick to worship. Be quick to worship. Not as a means to your end, but be quick to worship because he is the end. He is the goal. He is the prize. David, after everything that went down with Bathsheba, the baby was born and God had already told David, this baby won't live. But David spent days praying, weeping and fasting until he got the news that the baby had actually passed away. Can you imagine in this moment, all the emotions, all the thoughts, all the pain, all of everything that is just running through David's mind, all the regret, all the shame, all the guilt. Have you ever, have you ever made a decision to do something or to say something, thinking in the moment, you just kind of shut it off in your mind that there's no consequences to this, this isn't that big of a deal, only to, only to look back later and just be overwhelmed at what you did. If you haven't, I have, okay? I know what that feels like. And so David is feeling this times infinity in this moment. But I love what the word says that he did. It says, David arose from the ground. He washed and he anointed himself. He changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. here's the key you cannot let what is wrong with you keep you from worshiping what is right with God because if you do you'll never worship because even on your best day Isaiah tells us that, that our best works our, our, our best offering to God is as if filthy rags compared to his goodness and glory so even on my best day in and of myself I am not worthy to worship but because of Jesus even on my worst day, I can get up. I can wash myself. I can anoint myself. I can change my clothes. And I can go into the house of the Lord or I can go into the presence of God. And even though everything in me is saying, oh, you're not worthy of worship, I can lift my hands and say, I know. But he is and he was. He is worthy of my worship. That's what a pure heart looks like. When we stop looking at ourselves and we just say, you know what, God? I'm not going to focus on this. I'm going to focus on this. So today, for just the next few minutes, if that's your heart, if that's your prayer, God, I want to love you more than I've ever loved you. I want to be passionate for you to a greater degree than I've ever been passionate for you before. I want to say yes to you whenever, however, whatever.
I want to give you my all, everything. God, whatever it is you have for me, I want to give it. I want to get it, and then I want to give it to you. If that's your prayer, if that's your heart, I want you to come to this altar. You can kneel, you can stand. But listen, I just want you to come. Sometimes you just have to move out of where you are so God can take you where he's taking you to. So come now. Don's going to lead us. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. Come on, come now. Gather all around through here. This is a day of repentance for Lifehouse Church. Where we tell God, I'm sorry for the things that have gotten in the way. We tell God, I'm sorry that I've grown so mature in my faith that it has become domesticated, where it has become tame, and I have lost the wonder of my salvation. But we say to God, you have my yes in every situation, in every circumstance. Come on. Some of y'all are just standing there looking at me, but you need to move now. Don's going to lead us. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. We're going to stand. We're going to believe God. And I believe with all of my heart that today will function as a seed that he is planting in us as a congregation of what he is going to do in the future in us and through us. Because you can't have revival if you do not first have repentance. Go ahead.